Welcome to Legally Empowered. I'm your host, Sahara Pines, and I'm really excited to bring this podcast to you. As an attorney and former business owner myself, I'm passionate about drawing on my own experience and insight to set my female clients up for success. I know my guest today feels the same. It's such a privilege to welcome today's guest because she's someone I view as a true champion for women in the workplace. Nancy Affey serves as the co-chair of Fox Rothschild's Women's Initiative, a comprehensive firm-wide program that's dedicated to promoting women attorneys within the firm, as well as advancing Fox's women attorneys throughout the legal community. Like my own practice, Nancy focuses on labor and employment law counseling and litigation with an emphasis on problem prevention. She defends all types of businesses against employee claims and lawsuits involving wage and hour violations, discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. She defends both single plaintiff and class or collective actions and is my go-to mentor for all things labor and employment. Her depth of experience will surely come in handy today as we dive into a conversation about independent contractors versus employee classification. I'm so thrilled to have you here today, Nancy, and I really miss walking down to your office. It's my pleasure, Sahara. Thank you for having me. All right. So before we jump into the weeds here on this hot topic for entrepreneurs, let's get on the same page. Can you explain, Nancy, what is the difference between a contractor and an employee? Absolutely. Uh, An employer will have two different types of workers um, or team members. Uh, One type is an employee and the other type is an independent contractor. An employee is someone who is paid by W-2 and an independent contractor is someone that usually has their own private business and is paid by 1099. Whether someone is a contractor or an employee is a legal decision. It's not just the employer's choice or the worker's choice. And generally, under legal standards, if someone is doing work that's integral to your business and you're controlling what they do and how they do it, that person should be an employee, even if they're not full-time. So even if they are helping your business and they work either part-time or temporarily or on-call. Um, When a person is an employee, the employer pays payroll taxes um, and you have to have workers' comp insurance. Mm -hmm. And when someone is a contractor, generally the employer enters into a contractor agreement with the worker's business entity and that worker or contractor pays their own taxes and you issue them a 1099. Okay, and so the 1099 would be applicable to a contractor regardless of whether they have their own entity, right? That is correct. Okay, cool. So why is the contractor status so attractive to folks in the startup mode? You know, I think it's because there's this thought in the startup mode that the entrepreneur is not really sure what kind of workers they will need or for how long. So there's this concept of transitory work or temporary work and very often they don't want to get into, uh, they don't want to make a commitment necessarily to the worker. And very often too, a worker wants to be a contractor because they don't want those payroll taxes deducted. So um, So it's less expensive, right? It can be less expensive, but it's interesting too because there's this debate about whether it's better to be a contractor 
or an employee, and there's two sides of the debate. So a lot of our listeners might know of the kind of debate that's been going on for um, uh, platform drivers like Uber or Lyft drivers. You know, and on the one hand, there's been a big movement to make those drivers into employees. So they get covered by workers' comp insurance and covered by minimum wage laws and compensated mm-hmm. for all the hours they might spend driving. Uh, and the thought is that might be better for those workers. But on the other hand, a lot of those workers really like the independence of being contractors. They like to set their own schedules. They like to decide when they're working and how they work and fit it into their own schedules. And they feel like entrepreneurs with their own kind of car as their own business, right? And so there are really two sides to the story. And I think that kind of entrepreneurial spirit is really why so many new businesses go directly to contractor status and they don't really think about retaining people as employees. Well, and of course, this debate is playing itself out in the courts right now uh, with Uber, Lyft, uh, as well as the food delivery service, right? Uh, Right. All the on-demand services um, are currently hashing out this issue in the courts. And, you know, as I will often say, what starts out on the coasts will eventually move to the rest of the United States so that... California and New York have the bulk of that litigation right now, but other jurisdictions will likely have it in the coming years. Just a matter of time, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, I know we've uh, we've read articles about making a new classification of worker for gig economy um, rather than just have sort of the old-fashioned employee versus contractor uh, and potentially allowing some sort of hybrid model, but we're just not there yet under the law, right? No, the law does not catch up to the way the workforce has evolved. It's probably a decade or two behind, unfortunately. And that's really hindrance to entrepreneurs and new businesses because there really should be a different classification. The laws were developed around the idea that People work nine to five in an office or some sort of manufacturing setting, you know, where an employer controls what they do and how they do it and they need protection and breaks. But that makes no sense in kind of an on-demand economy. And also you want to have an environment where businesses can thrive and the traditional employment rules make that quite hard for businesses. So that's another reason I think why entrepreneurs lean to retaining workers as contractors because they believe it gives them more flexibility. But unfortunately, it also gives them a lot more risk. Absolutely. And I know costs are an issue for a lot of entrepreneurs when they're just starting out and they don't want to have the full cost of a salary plus um, payroll taxes. But what are some of the other additional costs that entrepreneurs have to consider? Sure. Well, in addition to payroll taxes, uh, all employees have to be covered by workers' comp insurance, workers' compensation insurance. Only W-2s, right? Well, yeah. So I'm going to correct semantics, right? Employees are W-2s. Contractors are 1099. So when I say workers, it's a general term that covers kind of both of those, right? So your W-2 employees 
do you need to have worker, workers' comp insurance? You have to pay them. You have to pay their payroll taxes. Many jurisdictions require sick pay. And mm -hmm. the jurisdictions of sick pay expand probably every day, it seems like. Again, that's something that started on the coast and has moved throughout the country. And then there are other benefits that many employers provide to employees quite often health insurance, you know, 401k, some sort of retirement plan. And then if a worker, if a, an employee actually leaves employment uh, for reasons generally unrelated uh, to quitting, they would be open to get unemployment in, in most jurisdictions as well, which is an additional cost of having a W-2 employee versus a contractor. Right. And that's could be how a company gets in trouble, right? The former contractor leaves employment. They don't realize that they're not subject to unemployment. And we've had a number of situations where they go and file for unemployment only to be told, hey, you are a contractor. You're not eligible, right? Right. And that can initiate an audit by whatever state agency is paying the unemployment. So in California, that would be the Employment Development Department. And you and I both know the EDD likes to audit companies that don't pay their payroll taxes. Sure. And the worker is pissed that they didn't get the unemployment. So they may seek plaintiff's counsel and come up with a whole host of other misclassification claims or wage and hour claims that you know, you handle on a regular basis. We both handle on a regular basis. Right. And as long as you teed up that question, let's just get into the risk of misclassification since we already kind of touched on it. Yeah. Get a claim from someone who believes they're entitled to unemployment. You also get a claim from someone who was injured at work and is now not covered by workers' compensation. And we know that not everyone in the U.S. has private health insurance. So sometimes mm -hmm. they need that workers' comp insurance to take care of their injuries, whether they be physical or emotional. All claims are point. also can be triggered uh, from state or federal taxing authorities, the IRS, or again, uh, California has its own state taxing authority, or back payroll taxes. So. For example, in a state like California, if you didn't pay payroll taxes and someone you got audited by the EDD for unemployment, they could notify other agencies about payroll taxes and, and an employer could place other audits, which uh, being audited is never a fun. And there's all kinds of penalties that can flow from that. Mm -hmm. Along with the possibility of claims from uh, former workers who were classified as contractors and then even maybe willingly classified as contractors, but realized that they worked a lot of hours and haven't been paid as much as they would have been paid had they been employees. Perhaps they worked overtime. When in California, states like California, you get overtime after eight hours in a day, not just 40 hours in a week. Right. Or uh, other states, again, like California, have certain meal break requirements where their premium pay is triggered for failure to get a full break or get a break within a specific time frame. So there's a lot of potential penalties for that misclassification that makes it quite risky. And as long as we're, you know, 
banging on California now. We've also got the Private Attorney General's Act, PAGA, for all the technical violations, right? And right. that's a whole other episode we could have you back for. But yeah, well, we can we can have a whole uh, PAGA episode that talks about the you know the nuances of the problems with the pay sub in California and how that can yield to penalties of hundred dollars per employee per pay period. But that's a topic for another day. Yeah, and the contractor issue truly is an issue across the entire country, not just a California issue. It's it's such a big thing in so many states. So talking about states, how does state law factor into who can be a contractor? Does it matter where the company is based or the worker, him or herself? What matters is where the worker is based. So in very general terms, where the worker lives and resides is the place that the law will apply to that worker. Okay, and so what is the law? Um, I know that California, states like Illinois, I think Massachusetts have this ABC test, which is more strict, and that there's generally a, is it 21-factor IRS test that applies uh, as far as control in many other states. Can you break the test down a little bit for us so that we understand what we're looking at? Sure. In, In all states, there's this concept of control. If the worker is controlled by the business, as far as when they have to work, how they have to work, the methods they need to use to get the work performed, then that worker is generally considered to be an employee, not a contractor. So if the business is telling the worker what to do, when to do it, how to do it, to follow a particular script, to do it a particular way, the employer or business is controlling that work. That's known as the control test. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, if the worker decides the method means when and how the job is getting done and all that's really being determined is the end, you know, being looked at by the business is the end product, that's generally considered to be more like the work of a contractor. You're, you're, retaining the contractor for a particular skill set that that contractor has that your employees don't have. So that kind of control test is kind of the general test that had been in effect pretty much everywhere in the U.S. with slight differences depending on what agency was implementing it uh, until maybe five or so years ago. Then we got Mm -hmm. this new thing, the ABC test. And the ABC test essentially has three factors. One factor is the control factor, as I just discussed. The second factor is in order to be a contractor, the work has to be outside the employer's usual course of business. Mm. So essentially you can't have a contractor doing the core functions of the business. And the third test or prong of the ABC test is that the worker has to have an independently established business trade or occupation Mm -hmm. um, of the same nature as the work performed. So you essentially, the contractor has to have their own business set up that performs these services for all types of businesses. And then you're retaining that contractor 
to essentially perform a service for your business that your employees don't do and that you don't control how they do it. That is what the ABC test is. So it's a lot more than just the normal control test, which everybody was used to up until mm-hmm. a few years ago. And the the prong B, right? The worker, the work is outside of the employer's usual course of business. That's sort of the Uber argument. Like exactly. Uber is a technology company, so the drivers are outside of our usual course of business, creating a technology platform. So we shouldn't be covered by the ABC test. Correct. And then the the workers say, wait a minute. Uber and Lyft are uh, all about drivers, right? right? And we are the core function of the business. Therefore, under the ABC test, we uh, have to be employees. What is Uber without the drivers? Yeah, it's it certainly sets up a uh, a really difficult framework for for companies and and especially emerging companies. So you talked about the um, prong C of the independently established trade or occupation that the worker should really be in business for themselves. And I want to just talk about whether the worker is their own DBA or sole proprietorship or whether or not they have an actual corporate entity set up. And does it make a difference? Can they just be paid through their company? And is that safer? So here, the answer is yes. So if if a business is going to retain a worker as a contractor, they should retain that worker through a business entity and not just pay that worker through the individual's social security number. The whole idea of hiring a contractor is you're hiring somebody who's got a special skill set. So hopefully they have set up a business entity. Hopefully it's more than just a registered DBA, although a registered DBA is better than nothing mm-hmm. in certain states. But it's certainly better to be a registered you know, LLC or some other business entity that's actually set up and pays its own taxes rather than being paying the individual just by 1099. In all states, that's going to be a bit of a red flag. Now, in some states, it's less of a problem than it is in other states. And this is part of the patchwork of this crazy system throughout the US. In what would traditionally be like a blue state, just having an individual paid by 1099 would be highly suspect. Whereas in a red state, it might not cause as much concern. It just depends a lot on the regulatory scheme in the particular state. Right. And you still can't control what the worker is doing. And it's not really a panacea to just pay somebody through an entity as, as far as classification goes. Exactly. And that is the conundrum that many businesses continue to get confused about. You know, well, if I just pay them by 1099, why aren't they a contractor? Well, because the law decides if they're a contractor. You and the worker don't get to decide. You have to do it in a way that's consistent with the regulatory scheme where the worker resides. Sure. It's not your choice and it's not the worker's choice. But 
we often get the question, can't they just sign an agreement saying that they want to be a contractor? Because so many people actually want to have that flexibility and they want to be paid through their company for tax purposes. What's what's the story with that? The story with that is if you're going to have a contractor, you 100% should have a contractor agreement. And it's going to be wonderful evidence that that person actually is a contractor and intended to be a contractor. But depending on where that person lives and resides, it is not um, guaranteed that a plaintiff's counsel or a regulatory agency or a taxing authority is going to agree with you and the right. worker that they are a contractor. The agreement is going to be exhibit number one if that is ever challenged and it's critical to have it, but it is no guarantee that people are going to agree with you. But and as long as we're talking about agreements, choice of law, right? You can't mm -hmm. just put in a red state choice of law that would govern an employee sitting in New York. So Harry, if I had $100 for every time that this had <laughs> asked me that question, we would all be retired because everyone that's so crafty. Oh, we'll mm -hmm. just say Texas law applies, you know, and then we can do whatever we want. Right. Uh, you know, Good idea, no? <laughs> It obviously doesn't work that way. Otherwise, everybody would just do it. Um, so no, that doesn't work. Okay, fair enough. So tell me about some situations where a contractor actually is going to be appropriate for a new business. Um, what What's safe? Is anything actually safe? Well, yeah, um, although limited, again, depending on what state the person resides in. Uh, so for example, you should be hiring a contractor to do something that is a skill set beyond the scope of what your employees traditionally do. So very often we see in our business, Sahara, in employment law, people hiring an HR consultant uh, to help them set up the business, figure out how to hire employees correctly, and to train somebody to do that part of the job and maybe work on a retainer or something like that. So an established business that's an HR consultant might work out quite well. Um, and any other type of consultant that uh, a business might hire to do something where they don't have the employees to actually do that work, an IT consultant to set up their you know, back of the house tech or uh, certainly any other kind of vendors to you know, do build outs or, you know, other type of work um, for sure. Where it starts to get sticky is consultants, like a lot of new businesses will hire a temporary CFO or CFO mm -hmm. or sometimes, sometimes even a CEO to run their business. And if that person is exclusively working for the business, even on a temporary basis, that's mm -hmm. when you start getting into a very sticky area. Because if you live in one of, if that person lives and resides in one of these blue states, even a temporary CEO or CFO, if exclusive to the business, should probably be an employee and not a contractor. So what are some signs then that a worker should be an employee on a W-2 basis rather than a 1099 contractor. Got it. Someone should be an employee when they're doing work that is integral to your business, that involves the core functions of what your business is set up to do. Someone should be an employee also 
um, if they're working for you exclusively and you don't want them working for any other business at the same time or competing with you. Mm. Someone should be an employee if they have been an employee for you in the past. I never like to see someone who's an employee and then all of a sudden becomes a contractor. Some of the taxing authorities look at that very suspiciously. Right. It should also be an employee if they have a long-term consistent relationship with you. Uh, that is also a factor that's looked at um, very strongly by regulatory authorities. And what about if that worker is coming to your office, although who's going to an office right now, um, or going to visit your customers and sort of has a forward-facing role, I feel like. Right. So if someone also is holding themselves out as a member of your business or affiliated with your business, so if they're, we used to say, wearing your uniform or name tag or, you know, on your business cards, or for new businesses, featured on your website, right? As mm, a, That's a good one, yeah. As a key person um, in, in what your business is doing, all those people should be employees. And by the way, no one should be on the website that's a contractor unless it specifically denotes them as a contractor. Uh, that is a sure sign that they will be considered an employee. Yeah, I mean, because this is such a fact-specific analysis, there's almost no slam dunk when you classify any worker as an independent contractor. So it's really always going to be safer, right, to err on the side of a W-2. Absolutely. When in doubt, if you're questioning what classification the worker should be, the less risky option is always to classify the person as an employee. If they are on a temporary basis, that's fine. You can make them a temporary employee for a limited period of time or for a particular project. That will help you defend against unemployment claims if you were clear that their hiring was temporary. But don't let the temporary or transitory nature of the relationship trick you into classifying them as a contractor if they really should be an employee. Well, and sometimes it's just a matter of risk reward, right? We have entrepreneurs who might be okay with taking the risk on a shorter term engagement, knowing that damages would be limited, even though the risk is technically still the same. Absolutely. Everything us lawyers do, Sahara, right, is a matter of risk assessment. You know, I tend to run towards the conservative and a lot of entrepreneurs uh, are accepting of a higher level of risk, which is entrepreneurs. I just want to say a word of caution, though. I very often hear people tell me, oh, that person will never sue. They're very happy being a contractor. That's what they want to be. And then life happens and certain mm-hmm. things happen or a pandemic happens or something else happens and all of a sudden the person who business thought would never turn on them does. And so we've got to be careful out there. Nothing is guaranteed. Thank you so much, Nancy, for joining me on this episode of Legally Empowered. I'm so grateful you were able to provide our listeners with useful information on how to properly classify their workforce. Thanks for being here. My absolute pleasure, Sahara. Thank you for doing this podcast.